This is the voice of contract management presented by the law firm of Kroll & Mooring exclusively for NCMA. Stay up to date on all things contract management five minutes at a time. Our team at Kroll & Mooring presents these podcasts to keep you up to speed on a bi-monthly basis. We will cover everything from regulatory updates to crucial changes that affect government contracting. We are your co-hosts for this edition, Peter Ayer and Addie Cliff. And we're going to depart today from our normal podcast approach. And instead of summarizing five or six different areas, Addie has joined us, and we're going to be spending most of our time today on Section 889. We've been talking to many, many companies for the last couple of weeks about these developments. So, Addie, what's been all the buzz around 889? Why is everyone talking about it? Can you give us a sense of why everyone's focused on this right now? Sure thing, Peter. Thanks. Let me start with a little background. What are we talking about when we talk about Section 889? So this refers to a provision from the fiscal year 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, and it refers to Section 889, as you would guess. And that section, generally speaking, prohibits federal agencies from acquiring certain products and services that in turn incorporate or use restricted products and services from certain named Chinese companies of concern to the U.S. government from a national security perspective, including Huawei and ZTE. I've heard some people refer to it as the anti-Huawei rule, although it does apply more broadly to telecommunications equipment produced not only by Huawei and ZTE, but also telecommunications and video surveillance equipment produced by Hytera, Hikvision, and Dawa. And in the future, DOD could designate additional entities that would be covered by this restriction. There are a bunch of different provisions in Section 889. I'm not going to go through it all, but I just want to highlight two key provisions as part of this conversation. And we've been referring to them as Part A and Part B of the prohibition. So Part A went into effect a year ago in August of 2019. And under that one, contractors are prohibited from furnishing customer agencies with any equipment or services that incorporate or use the covered telecommunications equipment or services. The Part A prohibition is a mandatory flowdown to government subcontractors, and that's already been implemented in the federal acquisition regulations. There's a representation that contractors have to make, and it's one of the standard reps that's in the, the system for award management, SAM. So Part B, which is what we're really going to talk about today, and which is set to go into effect on August 13th of this year, prohibits agencies from entering into contracts with contractors that use any equipment system or service that in turn uses covered telecommunications equipment or services as a substantial or essential component of any system or a critical technology of any system, regardless of whether the contractor's use has any nexus at all to the contractor's federal business, unless the contractor gets a waiver. I also wanna note that Part B, not only is it broad because it's use without a nexus to government contracts, but it's not limited to end products. So it covers equipment or systems that incorporate the relevant technology. So as you may imagine, Peter, because this Part B prohibition is so much broader than Part A, or at least potentially so, given the statutory language, contractors have been anxiously awaiting any guidance or rulemaking to inform how they think about compliance and the effect on their federal business. Starting in the winter of this last year, we'd originally expected some sort of proposed rule to come out, we heard it was going to come out in February or March of this year. That didn't happen. GSA and other agencies were hosting industry days. They were soliciting feedback. Everyone's watching for a rule. I'm getting questions about when it's coming out every day. 
Well, unfortunately, a proposed rule never came out. And instead, what we got on July 14th was the interim rule that's going to be effective on August 13th, less than a month after this interim rule comes out. So you can imagine that as a result of this, in the past couple of weeks, there's just been a flurry of activity as contractors try to digest and understand the rule, the implementing regulations, and determine, are we going to be able to certify compliance or are we going to have to seek a waiver? Addie, that is really helpful background. Why don't we go on to the next piece of this, which is when do contractors need to be ready? There's a lot of talk about this August 13, 2020 date. Do contractors have to be ready by then? So right now, the short answer is that, yes, it seems that contractors will have to be ready to make this representation by August 13th. So you may have heard this, not only has industry been pushing hard for a delay in the effective date to give more time to prepare, but even the agencies. So DOD has weighed in under Secretary Lord testified before Congress that contractors and the government need an extra year to get prepared for this. In light of this push, I think there's still some chance of a legislative fix. We've seen at least one proposed amendment that would delay the effective date to 2021 that was introduced for incorporation into the next National Defense Authorization Act, but that presumably won't get passed until fall. It's possible that something will be added to the COVID package that could be passed shortly. So we're keeping our fingers crossed, but at this point we haven't seen anything concrete. And in the meantime, GSA has said that it's working on getting the representation in SAM. It's going to roll out a mass mod for all GSA schedule holders. We've even heard that some customer agencies have started asking for representations in advance of August 13th so that the agency itself can assess and start getting prepared for any waivers that it has to seek because there's a fairly onerous process for the agencies to get waivers. So the short answer is, unfortunately, yes, contractors need to understand the rule and they need to be prepared for that representation that they're going to have to make in both their existing, certain of their existing contracts and, and certainly new contracts that are coming down the pike. Got it. Thanks so much, Addie. You've been talking to a lot of companies over the last few weeks and thinking about this for longer than that. What are some of the thorniest issues that contractors are wrestling with when it comes to this rule and the implementation? So many, Peter. I, I think maybe we could extend this into a 90-minute podcast uh, or perhaps even a 24-hour podcast, but I'll just highlight a few in light of the fact that this is the fastest five and not the fastest 90 minutes. So first, despite the fact that industry has pushed for clarification or definition of use, what does it mean to use these covered technologies? If I'm selling equipment or services that incorporate the covered technology, is that my use of it? Well, the interim rule did not define use, so we're still stuck trying to interpret that on our own. The interim rule also did not define or explain what constitutes a system. So I had mentioned that the prohibition applies to an equipment system or service that incorporates the covered technology as a substantial or essential component of any system. Well, there's no definition of system. So are they talking about information systems only, since this is really coming from a place of cybersecurity concerns? Or does it apply to any type of system? This could be quite broad. And again, we don't have clarification in the interim rule. The FAR Council did helpfully clarify in the interim rule that the prohibition only applies to the prime contractor entity. It does not at this time apply to affiliates and subsidiaries, unless, of course, they are prime contractors as well. In the commentary to the rulemaking, the FAR Council has a note saying that it's considering expanding the prohibition to include domestic affiliates and subsidiaries. So the fact that they expressly called out domestic affiliates and subsidiaries does indicate that there's no intention 
to expand the prohibition to cover foreign affiliates and subsidiaries. And I think that last part is a relief for many contractors who are concerned about how and whether it'd be possible to eradicate this covered technology at their overseas operations. So I think it's fair to say that there remains confusion or ambiguity in terms of how the exceptions to the prohibition apply, and specifically whether contractors themselves can consider all or some subset of the exceptions in making their representation. So just to give an example, the prohibition is on use of these covered technologies as a substantial or essential component of any system. But the representation that you have to make that's now been implemented into the FAR at Part 52 more broadly asks, will the contractor use any covered equipment or services? So there's nothing about as a substantial or essential component of any system. This suggests that the intent is for the contractor to disclose any use and leave it to the contracting officer to assess whether that use is as a substantial or essential component of any system. I think this read of the regulations is consistent with guidance that has subsequently come out from both GSA and DOD. So DOD issued a memo to its own contracting officers saying that the contracting officers are going to review disclosures that contractors are making as part of this representation to determine whether exceptions apply. And GSA said more affirmatively in a Q&A that all covered telecommunications and video surveillance equipment or services must be reported even if an exception applies. And again, it's the CO making that determination of whether an exception applies. So given the guidance and commentary in the rulemaking, it seems that contractors will have to disclose use even where certain of the exceptions apply. Certainly the exception for services that connect to the facilities of a third party, we call it the backhaul exception. The rulemaking itself was very clear that contractors cannot avail themselves of that particular exception. I think there's still some ambiguity with respect to a carve-out for telecommunications equipment that can't route or redirect user data traffic or permit visibility into any user data or packets that the equipment transmits or handles. That's a mouthful. But it's unclear whether that's an exception that the contracting officer can't invoke, or is that really a clarification on the definition of covered equipment such that the contractor can take that into consideration in making its representation? So in some a lot of gray area. And to date, unfortunately, a lot of the agency guidance that we've heard on industry days webinars has somewhat unhelpfully just pointed back to the language of the interim rule instead of really answering directly some of the questions that are percolating. So, Addie, as you've been advising contractors, what are some of the things they should be thinking about now? What should they be doing now, both in terms of what's currently here to implement, to deploy, to deal with, but also thinking about for the future? What are some of the practical tips and things they should be thinking about? Yeah, starting in the immediate in terms of getting your arms around what you have to do to prepare to make that representation that you could be making as early as August 13th or even earlier with some of those customer agencies. So the interim rule requires that contractors perform, in quotes, a reasonable inquiry in order to make the required representation. And there's actually a definition of that reasonable inquiries defined in the rule as an inquiry designed to uncover any information in the entity's possession about the identity of the producer or provider of covered telecommunications equipment or services. And it says that it excludes the need to include an internal or third party audit. So I think most people were relieved to see this concept of reasonable inquiry built into the representation. The language about information in the entity's possession is also helpful, though there's been a range of interpretations. Does this mean there is no need to reach out to suppliers and vendors beyond those, of course, that would be covered already by the Part A mandatory flowdown, or does it mean that 
some targeted outreach is necessary, but if the suppliers don't give you information, then it's not in your possession and, and you've sort of done your reasonable inquiry, a lot of questions around that. I think at a minimum, what we're advising and what contractors are doing is developing and implementing in this time period, a risk-based plan for the inquiry that's tailored to their organization and operations. And that means working collaboratively with IT resources to determine, you know, how can we inventory our own infrastructure, what's possible, what's practical in this time period. And then to the extent a contractor is identifying any potentially problematic equipment or services, assessing that, um, trying to understand, is it in fact covered? And then on the other side, working with the procurement department to determine how are we going to diligence our suppliers and vendors. So for those who may uncover covered telecommunications equipment and services, those particular contractors are going to have to develop the detailed disclosures that are required if you represent that you will use such covered equipment and services and thinking about the potential exceptions in terms of how you're articulating the use of those and then getting prepared to go through the waiver process. And then finally, Peter, in terms of the longer term, in the interim rule, the FAR Council articulates its expectation, not surprisingly, that contractors will develop Section 889 compliance plans. So as is typical with compliance plans, it includes written policies and procedures, training, auditing, all the normal hallmarks that we would expect. So in sum, there's a lot to do in the coming weeks and months. That certainly sounds like it, and we'll be watching. And we've got a team of folks, including Addie, obviously, that are monitoring this and advising a lot of companies and are standing by to assist and hope you will reach out and use us as resources through this really tricky, tricky set of issues. And with that, we'll close out. Addie, thank you so much for joining. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Voice of Contract Management brought to you by Kroll & Mooring exclusively for NCMA. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to discuss all things government contracting. In the meantime, explore your learning opportunities at www.ncmahq.org slash course catalog.